Do you know how to make it record? I think it is recording. This is um, this is going to be a week without technical expertise. That's a worry. But do you know how that thing works? Well, basically, the 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 thing that says record time is currently counting upwards, which I would suggest is something of a victory. Mm. And also the um, the waveform thing is high enough to suggest that me speaking is being recorded onto the machine. But the thing is, so we we, we shouldn't place Steve on a pedestal as some sort of technical guru. Because how many times do we start recording one and then Steve goes, oh no, I'm not recording. I'd like, to, pu- I'd like to put him on a pedestal and then just push him off into the seat. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I, think, I think we've done that. It's taken us about 45 yeah. seconds, but we've managed yeah. to do well, Why don't you stop it and see whether it's recorded? Um, because... Nah. Let's just I take mean, the risk. This is, this is podcasting gold. Why would you want to stop this? But I think, um, I think we're okay. Do you think Steve will listen in New York? No. I don't think Steve will listen in New York. No. Um, Steve is spending so much time doing other people's chores while in New York for them. For example, Rory Smith is asking who else? for NHL. He asked me and pretty much everybody who was at his party. He said, is there anything I can get for you in New York? So I would imagine if anybody was uh, had enough wherewithal to respond to him and he had enough wherewithal to make any notes, he will be shopping for other people the entire time he's supposed to be there celebrating his 40th birthday. Do you think Steve Wyeth will have to come in through the anything to declare aisle <laughs> at Manchester Airport? What, what is the limit that you have to do? Like 200 bottles of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> what have you asked him for? I've asked him for some NHL apparel. Based change. This would be really embarrassing. Apparel. You've got a really nice Chicago Blackhawks I t-shirt. I do, I do, yes, yes. Which you purchased in New York yes. while we were there. Yes, I did. And I purchased yes. an, an excellent um, RG3 Washington Red, Redskins top, Very which good. proved to be massively incorrect. I did have another one. I had a red one, but it got stolen out the back of the car. Oh, when you got your passport stolen. In Portugal, stolen. and everything got stolen, and money got taken out of my account. Terrible situation, but passport the worst stolen, thing was... Which is why he had to have that new smouldering passport. Yeah, yeah. Ah, which but is the, now framed the worst, the worst part of it was one of those t-shirts got stolen. I didn't tell Nikki about this, I, I said, yeah, it's the passport, definitely the money's gone missing, <laughs> but I was really smoulderingly angry about losing that t-shirt. So, th- this is going to sound weird and obsessive, but when it, since, ever since I saw you in that Chicago I've been imagining you I have been day. thinking about you in that t-shirt. My box. mind's telling me no! <laughs> <laughs> so, it's made, they're made by a company called CCM, Yes, uh, who produce kind of retro-y faded, vintage style NHL stuff. Mm. Uh, Props so to CCM. Get in touch. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, believe, I believe it stands for Canadian something and motorbikes. That's I what don't know what it stands for, actually. No, no. But I was way ahead of my time, wasn't I? You were. So you anyway, I really like your Blackhawks yeah, yeah. t-shirt. You went into a yeah, shop yeah, and you yeah. bought a t-shirt, yeah. and you were not ahead of your time. I was. Well, hang on. I mean, we should all pause at this point. So Christchurch, Manchester. No, no, no. That's a different CCM. <laughs> we should all pause at this moment to know how remarkable it is that Chinch A owns and B wears a t-shirt that is not produced by noted fashion brand Superdry. <laughs> Which, uh, funnily enough, have today, you noticed that? Very springtime Chinch. Yeah. Um, he is wearing a new diesel top, which is the secondary, but only other um, item of clothing or brand of clothing he will wear. But diesel is a much higher mark than Superdry. It was a gift. It was a gift. I didn't buy it myself. It was a gift. It's a very nice t-shirt. Thank you. The other thing to happen at Steve's party um, on Saturday night was the lawyer friend that he has, who we have noted uh, yes. before on the podcast, who we're not gonna, I'm not going to say the name of this time, just, just in case, uh, slightly worse for wear, he, he told me something that he didn't want me to repeat. But he basically said he's desperate, Chinch, mm. for you to say what you really think about Paul Jewell, and he has <laughs> preemptively offered to defend you in any defamation in a court of cases law. that follow it. And I said, oh. well, I don't know. Do, do you not, do you not, 
I think the Paul Jewell stuff comes out pretty fresh. I don't, I don't think there's a, there's a lot that he holds back. It's the Neville Southall stuff you've got to worry about. That would be libelous beyond, uh, beyond the pale. I, I would admit that I feel I know pretty well what Chinch thinks of Paul Jewell. Yes, I think, I think we do get yeah. it, warts and all. Yeah. I mean, you did, yeah. you did admit, kind of, to writing a fairly terrible thing in the snow outside his office. That wasn't me. That wasn't you, it was Andy No, Booth. it was Andy Booth. Welcome <laughs> to Set Piece Many. This is the podcast where four friends talk football over the food. The food, um, if this was one of those smell-o-vision things, you would know that the food is being currently cooked in the oven. We will be having a quiche with salad and coleslaw. Essentially, with Steve not being here, we have created a luncheon that involves everything that he would not eat by way of celebration, frankly. So there's coleslaw, which he hates, salad leaves, like them, tomatoes, nope, and quiche with cheese in. Nope, not interested in any of those things. (laughs) Does Steve not like cheese at all? He prefers, I I think he likes cheese. He'll he'll countenance it on pizza, and that's about it. Coleslaw's in my top seven foods. I think it might yeah, be a proper coleslaw. Well. Do you like raisins in your coleslaw? Absolutely not, Chinch. Get <laughs> no, <laughs> serious. Come on, get out. Why, no. would, why would I want raisins in my coleslaw? Because they improve coleslaw. It's like people who eat fruit and nut chocolate. Oh, oh yeah, it's gorgeous. Isn't what it? do you want with your chocolate? Fruit? No, thank you. I'm happy for for raisins to be in pretty much anything. Yes, really. Yeah, yeah it does enhance coleslaw. Coleslaw's good. But with raisins, it is better. Don't need it. Well, let's introduce you to today's set-piece menuers in order of DIY achievements over the last couple of weeks. I'm Hugh Ferris. I've built one IKEA wardrobe and two bedside tables. Rory Smith, who has fixed his office chair more than once, which hints a little bit at the first uh, attempt not necessarily being the most impressive. There is a structural issue with the office chair. So perhaps you might have just bought a new one. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who has built a whole house in Portugal. Hmm. Kind of. How's it, that going? It's. Can I say what's gone wrong? Yes, you can. Because a major gone company wrong. has let me down, kitchen-wise. Is that right? Yeah. Major company. Major company. Major company. Four letters. Swedish. I'll give you a clue. It's IKEA. <laughs> They've. Co- they're. Fi- oh, they're fitters. What are they thinking? Do they know how to silicon? What are they doing? We've got to go back there next month and get it all sorted out. What's happened? What a sh- they, we designed the kitchen impeccably. Yeah. They send impeccably. their guys round, guys round to fit everything that we yeah. want. And uh, there's wobbly bits, the silicon around the outsides all over the shop. Our builder, Ted, he's furious. Ted, very Portuguese name. Well, he's from London, but he's lived over there 20 years because people can travel between countries in Europe at the moment. <laughs> Until March 2019. So Ted has been over there doing a grand job. We think, Akia, you come in and you fit the kitchen. We've made the space for you. They came round, actually this is the second time they've been around. They came round the first time and there was a a door missing off one of the front of the units. There was still loads of stuff to do. They just downed tools and went. (laughs) They just left everything. We're furious. Nicky was absolutely furious. You know all those complaints we have about how we never talked about football early on? Yeah. Mm. I can can kind of understand them. (laughs) Oh, and look at that. We're going to have to now pause because we're going to serve a delightful lunch. That is undoubtedly the finest quiche I have partaken in many, many months. Now, I know my quiche. (laughs) That was a cracker. Firstly... Thank you. Secondly, I don't believe you. And thirdly, the speed with which we ate that quiche is not at all good for us. That's true, but I, I have an excuse. I don't know about you two. Mm-hmm. I have a very small child. Uh, last week, Kate and I were in Copenhagen mm-hmm. uh, for our first trip abroad as a family. And we went for a Thai meal, uh, as you do in Denmark. 
uh, on our first night. It was the closest place to the hotel. You always go to Denmark for excellent Thai food. Anyway, we did have a lovely. It was a lovely, lovely restaurant called Bangor. I'd recommend it if you're in Copenhagen. By the way, I've I ate Vietnamese in Amsterdam. So. I've eaten Indonesian in Amsterdam as well. But then there, there is a connection between Holland and there Indonesia. So it Dutch makes sense. East Indies. Exactly. Yeah. I Did had pork chops in Barnsley once. <laughs> Carry on. Barnsley, Barnsley chops. No, that's a different thing. <laughs> you, you went to Barnsley, didn't have a Barnsley chop? No. Chin. Pork chop. That's why I'm it's just crazy. That, Call me crazy. That's ridiculous. what I do. That's how I roll. Anyway, it's unrelated. we went to... This whole thing is unrelated. We went to a Thai restaurant and... In, it took us 22 minutes to get in and get out having eaten a pad thai and a thai red curry and the waiters and waitresses I think were appalled by the barbarians just <laughs> throwing food into our faces but when you have a baby you, you, you train yourself to eat as quickly yeah. as possible yeah. because the baby might wake up and ruin everything 22 so, minutes you, t- you 22 minutes <laughs> really romantic meal well it sounds fairly specific I, I imagine Steve who is not with us today as you all know already uh, is because he is without children in New York is able to enjoy his meals in the fullness of time and very romantically. Big shout out to Steve. Hope he's having a lovely time in New York. Just so you know, Steve, this is the third time we've had this conversation <laughs> because Hugh keeps forgetting to press record. <laughs> it was always a risk. Uh, no Steve today then for the first time ever, actually. Um, his batting average has dropped below for the first time 1,000. Now that is a baseball reference, not a cricket one. I say that in response to Jan Wolf or Wolf. Who sent us? <laughs> or it would be Jan Wolf. It could be Jan Wolf yeah. or Jan Wolf or a combination of either of those two things. The reason I say Jan Wolf is because they sent us our shortest email ever. The subject line: Please stop using cricket language. The body of the email: The rest of Europe has no clue what you're talking about. In reference to what? In reference to I think in 68 episodes plus two extras. One phrase used in the VAR episode, umpire's call. Well, hang on. So I don't want to be disrespectful to I'm going to assume it's Jan if, he, if that's, they're that's talking about I had assumed, continental yeah. Europe. Umpire's call is not specific cricket term- no, terminology. No. That could be tennis. And they have umpires in tennis. They yeah. do, but the, the, the phraseology is cricketing. But I, do, I think one phrase in 68 yeah. episodes doesn't necessarily... It's not like the googly's been caught by the silly mid-off, which <laughs> no one wants. And came, came out, out of your mouth very naturally, Jim. Yeah. Uh, you can get in touch with similar complaints of any vernacular that we've been using, or indeed anything at all, at setpiecemenu on Twitter and setpiecemenu at gmail.com. VAR, by the way, from last week, a subject that you felt very strongly about. So here is just a soup song people who aren't in continental Europe understand me saying soupçon uh, of your correspondent. Firstly, to Shannon Brown, who kicked off the debate uh, with an email last week. They wanted us to know that she's a she, not a he. Okay. So, first of all, apologies. And second of all, Jan or Jan, you may well be making the same complaint. Uh, This from Chris Pilo. I last listened to SPM trekking across Spain on the Camino de Santiago last summer. Bit showy offy. Um, hashtag humble brag. And of all the things to entice me back in, it was bloody VAR. What else have I missed? Well, Chris, you've missed a hell of a lot. 68 episodes plus two extras. Do your homework, sunshine. I'd quite like to do the Camino, not for religious reasons. I just think it would be a nice What walk. is it? It's, it's the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Okay. And how long a trek is I this? I believe it's 500 miles in total. I'd be intrigued to know whether Chris did all of it. Walking. But also, what happened to Chris on the Camino that made, he, made him stop listening to Set Piece Many? He might yeah. have come to the end of the Camino. Do you think that he got to the end of the Camino and he received a message from God not to listen to it? <laughs> isn't there a fairly terrible uh, film starring Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez? 
his son, his son yeah. about doing the Santiago de Costa uh, also from Adam Clark just caught up with the latest episode the two things that would improve VAR is a start stop clock similar to that in rugby and also a clear signal by the ref instead of a finger to the ear convinced it'll work in the long run uh, something similar from Matt Addison my main issue with VAR is the lack of added time that seems to be accounted for especially he says when Craig Pawson is the referee uh, they take forever to make a call and then don't add it on at the end I'd like to see the clock stopped if referees are going to deliberate for that long and Jacob Davis on Twitter the on-field umpire rule is definitely needed oh, scarily into cricketing but what's an umpire? There. an umpire is a <laughs> thing only found in cricket yeah. something like after three clear replays, if sufficient evidence to overturn the decision is not available, the on-field decision is upheld. Something similar happened in the FA Cup uh, quarter-final involving Spurs. Son Heung-Ming scored a goal. It was ruled out. They decided essentially that there was not enough evidence to overturn it. Took a little bit longer than it should have done. But in doing so, they realised that it should stay with the decision made by the So the right the decision referee. was got to. The right decision was got to. Mm-hmm. If it had been a goal and they'd given the goal, they should have also kept it as a goal and not uh, changed it because there was not enough yeah. sufficient evidence to do so. Chinch, any of those uh, three uh, I like the, the clock stopping like? business because mm. things can rumble on. Mm. But if we're going to use this, fans have to understand that it might take a bit of time to look. We can't just do it instantly. It's going to take some time. So stopping the clock makes sense because mm. then you're not eating into playing time. And you're getting to the right decision. You're giving the officials the best chance of getting to the right decision. This from Simon Anderson. To my mind, the sport which football should be looking at is cricket. Simon, do you understand Jan's complaint? Rather than rugby or the NFL, as I'm sure you know, in cricket, each team is given two challenges against the umpire's decision. Also in NFL, with a red flag thrown. I feel like this would be the best solution in football. Firstly, it would, to some extent, give back the authority that the referee has in that unless challenged... His decision is final. No one would have to worry about a random, unexplained delay in play whilst he puts his finger to his ear. Nobody likes the putting the finger in the ear. It would also pass some of the criticism on to managers. Fans could debate why their manager didn't spot or challenge a certain decision. In taking the responsibility out of the referee's hands, I think it shuts down some of those grey areas you were talking about on last week's podcast. I would, however, still let the referee use the system to check for red card situations and mistaken identity. I'm not sure. I, I, I quite liked the idea of the challenge in theory, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure it would work because... Mm-hmm. It doesn't really solve the problem. It, it maybe narrows it down a little bit, so the managers have to challenge for a result for a decision to be reassessed. But it doesn't make it any easier in those shades of grey decisions that we talked about to know whether they are black or they're white. If you see what I mean, and it might end up that the referees feel under pressure if a manager has challenged, it might sway the decision one way or the other. Um, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting idea. I don't object to it, but it's maybe flawed. Any thoughts on that change? I don't like I don't like the challenging system. I don't like that for all the reasons the previous caller just mentioned. <laughs> Our old friend John Nicholson from Football Three Six Five got in touch with Set Piece Menu on Twitter. I was hoping someone would share my fundamentalist, humanitarian, philosophical opposition to VAR. For what it's worth, I predict it will be such a disaster in Russia it will kill it off for good. And then he says, "I wonder where the VAR officials will be during the World Cup in some sort of sordid grief hole in Minsk with a gun to their temple, weeping whilst drinking potato vodka," which conjures up a rather nice thought. It does. Uh, my boss, Andrew Das, a uh, long-time listener, occasional anonymous contribu- contributor, <laughs> the, um, the, his, his view, he's made this, and it's a really good point, that obviously at the World Cup, re- referees come from all over the world. We have loads and loads of different systems of how VAR is used already in Europe, and then a different one in MLS and different ones elsewhere. And lots of them will be coming from countries where they don't have VAR. So how the hell are they going to make that work? So I, John's probably right. I, I suspect it will be a, a bit of a 
Yeah, but presumably the officials Disaster, they'll, they'll the run world. the systems by the officials. Yeah, but yes. we've already seen how unfamiliar uh, the mistakes creep in because referees are unfamiliar with it. So yeah. they, they're all going to have about two, two or three weeks training at most for the World Cup in in Toto, and then you're going to get like you'll have a day or two on VAR. It's going to be that that is potentially a. It's an area of problems. Where's, where's Toto? <laughs> Come on. If you don't have a basic grasp of Latin, you shouldn't be doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants to feel alienated by the cricketing stuff, you've also now got that from Rory. Uh, this finally from Jimmy Armchair, uh, which I assume is his real name. Uh, and it's directed at Steve, who has no right of reply. So enjoy this, everybody. Steve, have you learned nothing from Brexit? Instituting that's VAR. A great, that's a great question to Steve. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he is to blame. In the conviction that everything will be fine when we've thought it all through eventually is, as proved by our politicians on Brexit, no way forward at all. He's certainly got my hackles up. Please don't tell us black and white issues will be solved when you use an example that isn't black and white. Handball is one of Rory's shades of grey. Was Decore's handball definitely intentional, he asks. Was his arm definitely in an unnatural position as he protected himself against an imminent, colli- imminent collision with the keeper? The on field referee may have taken judgment rather than missed the incident. It may not have been a clear and obvious error. It's black and white if you ask a Southampton fan, not if you ask a Watford fan. Like me, which might be the position, just those two words inside parentheses, that undermines some of what he has to say. Issues will crop up, he says. For example, if a linesman wrongly flags a player offside and the referee stops play with a player through on goal, what does the ref do when VAR tells him he should have let play continue? For me, this could be VAR's version of Brexit's insoluble Irish border question. He says, <laughs> getting, getting to the nub of the matter. But I'm against VAR for a more fundamental reason. VAR, like Brexit, isn't an answer to the problem people have got. Rory defines the problem well. Steve bad, Rory good, says Jimmy Armchair. I agree with Jimmy. Yes, everything he said so far. There should be much more thinking around what the answer might be, rather than leaping to something that, like Brexit, he says in parentheses again, is expensive, complex, and flawed. Blimey. I feel like that there is no necessary reason. I did show Steve, and Steve did have a few things to say about it. Unfortunately, he's in New York, so he's got no way of saying so. At setpiecemenu on Twitter, and setpiecemenu at gmail.com. I like that email, not just as he was nice about me, but, but he's right that it's really hard, even in court, to prove intent. Yes. And that's the problem with, with, with things like handball, that we, we think of them in a sort of detached way as being black or white, but they're not. Because, yeah, how do you prove what... I mean, the unnatural position is stupid, and it wasn't an unnatural position for an arm. But it's really hard. To, you can't look on a video and say, well, he definitely meant to do that. That is really difficult. So I think that is a, an excellent point from a man with fine taste. <laughs> now, our subject today is nerves. What? <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. How long have you been thinking of that, Chinch? Oh, ages. That's, that's basically, In the car drive over. That's basically the, that's yeah. the most preparation Chinch has ever I was going to talk to you about selling it, but I just thought I'd let it happen organically. It was it was very beautiful. It's all in the timing. You're right. You may well have read an interview in Der Spiegel um, with Per Mertesacker um, recently, which starts like this. The nausea comes four or five seconds before kickoff. Every time, once he takes his position on the pitch, surrounded by roaring fans, and he knows that, once again, he has to give it his all for 90 minutes. The tension, he says, becomes almost unbearable. My stomach starts churning, and I feel like I'm going to throw up. Then I have to choke so hard that I tear up. He always turns his head to the side with his chin facing his shoulder so that no one can see what is happening, says the piece. He then goes on to reveal how he feels there's a genuine human cost to playing football at the top level and that years of abuse take their toll mentally, let alone the physical symptoms that he's spoken about. So we're asking, how nervous do players get? Is it healthy? Is the pressure on them too intense? And what does that mean for life 
after football. Now, we've read that piece, but Roy, you've also uh, had a conversation with uh, recently with Chris Sutton. We have a former player in Chinch. Would you like to hear Chinch's thoughts before we hear from Chris Sutton? I think, well, I can't, I, I'm not Chris Sutton's spo- spokesman, Hugh. Come on, crying out loud. I think we should, we should hear Chinch's thoughts. <laughs> how I felt. How, I was. How about your you incredibly, incredibly nervous. From incredibly when? Nervous. Well, this is the, is it me? Is it Per Mertesacker? Is it presumably Chris Sutton? Or is it the game that does this to you? I'm quite a nervous person regardless of what I've done throughout my life at school, taking exams, becoming a footballer, playing in front of crowds, playing for England. It, and that's strangely, actually, playing for England, I wasn't nervous at all. Because you were playing Moldova. Because we were playing Moldova. <laughs> and you had David Beckham And the, the mighty team. Georgia. But, yeah, that was strange. Whether you, I just put a complete shell... But normally when you put a shell on just to get through... Mm. Still inside, you're churning, but on the outside, it looks like a swan. Mm. You look fine on the surface, but underneath, you're going hell for leather. When I play for England, I never felt that way, which is really strange, because I was incredibly nervous. I actually started to have these kind of... I had to do my bootlaces up an even number of times. I got these kind of weird things that I felt had to be done, Mm. or things would go badly for me. The old Paul Ince, don't put your shirt on until the very end. Yeah, but I seem to manufacture them and think... But clearly they, and I knew when I was doing them, they weren't going to make any difference. But if I, if I tied my bootlace once, I had to undo it again and do it a second time. Mm. So again, whether you just, is that control? Is that a way of, of getting through the is experience it, that is, that is cool? Cause I'm a, bit, a little bit kind of odd anyway, which we, you can disagree, waiting, disagree yeah, at any point. No. Something then. <laughs> so I, I am maybe wired a little bit differently than most footballers, but what, because we don't really talk about this and players didn't want to talk about this and talk about how nervous they were because it was seen as a real weakness. So you just tended, it, maybe it was, it was there across the board. Maybe 90% of players were very nervous, but some of them, most of them were able to mask it quite well. And we're never going to talk to the teammates about how, how difficult it maybe was for them. Do you think you to would go and play? Those little superstitions were a yeah. way of, was it almost a distraction technique? Yeah. Yes, and thinking about, oh, we talked about this before, thinking about what Milo was going to have from the Chinese restaurant 20 minutes before the end of a game. It just kind of got you through. That's probably why we conceded so many goals in the final 20 <laughs> minutes of games I played in. But, you, you, but, but you the often, uh, sweet and sour chicken was delicious. You do you do tend to do this with, with, with serious matters. I think we all do. You, you tend to laugh yes, about yes, how yes, silly yes, they were. Yes. But you are thinking about Chinese takeaway. Yes. Why? Because you didn't care? No, no, absolutely. Because no, I did care. I probably cared too much. And in many ways, it was the fear of making mistakes. And then when I played for England, I remember my ex-wife saying to me, whatever you do, don't make a mess of it. So that really fills you Brilliant. with <laughs> Brilliant. I'm playing amazing. for England. Isn't it wonderful? Basically, yeah, but whatever your wife you do, is a tabloid newspaper. <laughs> don't be the one to make mistakes and score the own goal because we're going to be tired with that brush as well. Great. That's really going to fill you with enthusiasm to go out and play. So all these things kind of... But that's the last thing you should say to someone who you would know. That's maybe why we're divorced. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. That's probably the, one of the main reasons. Over the but 68 anyway. episodes, you have given quite a few. Yes. Um, but well, I was incredibly nervous, but I was an incredibly... But I was never sick. I never felt tearful. Mm. I was just the fear of making mistakes in in, in many ways my career I, I probably hampered myself I didn't really express myself or play with the freedom that maybe other players could play with because I was so fearful of making the mistakes so you play more conservatively how did the how when did the nerve start but like I said I've, I've had no, them throughout my of, life so oh in terms of a game you've got a game on the Saturday when, when do you start getting nervous not but 
probably be the morning of the game. That's when I tended, again at home, the obsessive compulsive thing. I tended to have to tidy the house and make sure the house is all right and hoover that. I had all these things in place. If I didn't do them, I feel <laughs> that would be, really... There not be many players who spend their mornings hoovering their house. But it was, again, it was that Since control. Since retired, he's not hoovered anything ever. <laughs> I haven't, actually. So my house is a tip. But anyway, yes, they, all these things had to be in place and I had to leave at a certain time. And if people were travelling with me and they were running late, I remember a couple of occasions, I used to just, just leave them behind because if, the, if we're meeting up at half past 11, I used to have to leave the house at quarter to 11. If people weren't there at 11, um, 10.45, I was gone. So I had all these things in place, which were part of my routine. But it, again, I had to do this to maybe cope with what was going to happen because of the person that I was. Whether that's true for the majority of players, I don't know. But that's certainly what I went through, just, just to be able to... But even the more games I played over the years, playing 10, 15 years of football, it was still the same. I was a bit more relaxed maybe towards the end because you probably knew your time was coming to an end. So you should really think, well, all these things I did 10 years ago, they, were, they didn't make any... Actually, didn't make any difference to the outcome because ultimately it's what you did on the pitch. But I felt that they were important. When I got into my 30s and close to retire, you, you feel very differently and act very differently then. Did you look forward to games during the week certain no I probably didn't for, again for the fear of being the one to make the mistake to cost all the preparation it could be down to me and that is really debilitating when you feel that it could and inevitably at times it is going to be you you play 500 games you're going to make a lot of mistakes you never played 500 games I've played very nearly 500 <laughs> games and I've played he them damn well he should have played about 800 <laughs> if not for the injuries but anyway so yes it was that fear again of I, please don't let me be the one to yeah. maybe that's, that's what goes through a lot of players heads and is there not did you ever either confide in a teammate that, that you were feeling that or hear never. anybody else say anything no. like that no never ever talked about nervousness and I can't remember do you remember looking I at can't remember seeing people be, like paramedics being ill and going to that extreme you'd normally think there's something wrong with them yeah. not actually that it's the nerves that's sending them down this road everybody seemed better than me in terms of their preparation and how they that everyone seemed to be footballers and I was a guy playing football you know is this really where I should like be I don't look feel comfortable imposter, as everybody else imposter syndrome kind of yes yeah. I've never really thought about it until this moment but maybe that was part of it you feel a little bit out of place because of the kind of person you think you are and the kind of person you are and you see everybody else going about their business as if it's the most natural thing in the world we'll, we'll come on to the England thing a little bit later on because there are a lot of people who feel that um, not only about international football but particularly playing for England so we'll come to that later remedies to it mm. you said that you have little things that you went through uh, little superstitions to help you mm -hmm. but in not speaking about it yeah. there was no obvious way of coaching staff yes, to help exactly. you exactly so do you think that co some coaching staff can make it worse or do not have the ability to spot in a player that they might be nervous and that they could do something to well, help you'd them. hope things would be different now in terms of, of depression and all that is, is there's so much more that players are able and willing to speak about and get help for which is really great but that, I, that has changed in maybe the last 10 years that certainly wasn't the case when I was playing it was something that was never mentioned the coaching staff probably I can't ever remember them talking to but it never seemed to be the case so maybe you're so wrapped up in your own little world you don't notice that maybe other people feel that way so you wouldn't notice maybe conversations that were going on to help that person it was just you know just get on with it you know you're a footballer you can play what are you nervous about it was kind of just go out and play there isn't anything to be nervous about but it's all the background and the lives that people have behind the game isn't it that probably comes to the fore when you actually step out in front of 60,000 people it can become really traumatic. So I'm sh hopefully now clubs are very aware of it. 
coaching staff will be a lot more aware of it and certainly working with younger players in academies they should be talking to these players and it must it must appear and there must be ways of helping people deal with these situations so your your friend and mine Mickey Thomas yes former United and Leeds and Wrexham and everything else that a lot of people will know him particularly in the Manchester area because he is a broadcasting legend mm. um, but he in his book and he often tells the story in, now in an amusing way as is often the case about the fact that he used to have to drink two bottles of wine the yeah, night before yeah. to be able to sleep the night before. He got so drunk once they famously slept in inside the stadium at Stamford Bridge before a Chelsea game the next day. So these these are coping mechanisms that are slightly anachronistic now, but clearly the problems that people go through. What was your chat with Chris Sutton and what did he bring up? Well, no, he, he he read the Mercer Satter interview and we just we, we would, it was before we did the radio and, and he was I just sort of said to him D- did you feel like that at all or, or recognise any of that and I thought what was interesting was that he said that Celtic well obviously he had a he was in a great team and he was enjoying probably the, the best spell of his career he didn't have it at all because he felt completely comfortable and at Norwich he, when he was a, a young kid he felt as though he could take on the world and I guess that's the arrogance of youth and that is maybe the armour that you need to get through it but in his time at Blackburn and Chelsea. I played against him at Chelsea and you were going to, yes, a very different Chris Sutton. And at it? Chelsea, yeah. He, yeah. he clearly felt, and I don't want to speak for him, but he clearly felt inhibited in some way by the sense that it, it had started to go wrong mm. and he wasn't enjoying himself. He no longer felt invincible. There was all this pressure of his massive transfer fee and presumably fans on his back. And yeah, stuff. yeah. And he started to feel, yeah, in some way unable to, to be the Chris Sutton who had cost £5 million because... He, it wasn't it wasn't working out and something was inside his head and it took going to Celtic mm. to kind of free him of that and being with O'Neill who he got on very well with but he, he said that he saw players really suffer with nerves before games at, at all of those clubs more, more so, much more so than him yeah. and it, I just wonder what Chin said is, is, is really really interesting I just wonder whether there's a lot of players even now, even though they have the psychologists and the, you know the, there is hopefully that alpha attitude of don't show any weakness, I think is starting to ebb away a little bit in football, although maybe not entirely. I just wonder whether there's a lot of players who who are putting on a a shell, who are who are feeling intensely nervous. Inside. But when you go on TV or you you broadcast, you do, do you not do you not feel nervous? Is is it not just naturally human to be nervous about what you're doing? I feel nervous before going on the radio because I swear a lot in, in in everyday life. Yes, and I always have this panic attack that I'm going to say something really really rude to Mark Chapman, <laughs> <laughs> and often he'll deserve it. But the, the the nerves are something probably doing something new. You are more nervous than doing something that you do every day, but also there's there's a sense that when you are doing the thing that you hopefully feel that you do well, you will use that as an adrenaline builder. Yeah. So you will actually think, I have a chance to do this well. I'm going to take that chance, which is a coping mechanism all yeah. of its own. It's yeah. your way of cheating your brain yeah, yeah, into yeah. thinking that it's going to be fine when yeah. you are nervous. But when you're doing the ten o'clock news. <laughs> not, not the 10 o'clock news. The sports bulletin. <laughs> the sports bulletin that happens uh, so, after. When, so when I go and, do a, go and do a match, I get a bit nervous before interviews because you don't want to mess it up and you don't want to kind of blow, you, blow your chance. But not in any way. You know, it's, it's not like even... You get the first question and make sure it's a good one and then, you, then you're in your stride, which is what a player would say. Play the first pass. But does that nervousness fuel a, a good... Because that's what I no. find now with broadcasting. I get those butterflies, and, but it actually... I don't know, it actually works in reverse. Yes, it works in reverse. I would say, at best, my nerves make me average. And (laughs) a lack of nerves means you get an average performance out of me. But before a game, 
I, that's an adrenaline builder. I know I can do that. I know I can write a, a piece off a game. I liked the pressure of the deadline. I yeah. liked feeling it makes you feel. It's really stupid. It's just it's stupid to compare it to, to football because it's not the same rush. But quite a lot of journalists will tell you that after a, a Champions League game at night, you get home at one, half one in the morning. You probably stay up till three because you're still. Yeah, yeah. There's a real when you're on de- and you're hitting a deadline. Mm. And you've got a thousand words to write on a blank piece of paper, and you do it. You do get a massive adrenaline rush. But that's that's like Hugh says. That's well, partly that's a private thing. You, you look. You know, if you, if you file it and it's terrible, then everyone might be a bit disappointed with you. But it'll still as long as it's on time and there's no swear words in it. Although I've got quite funny stories about other journalists who haven't quite <laughs> met both of those requirements. But um, the yeah, as long as it's on time and, and it's vaguely You vaguely don't make coherent. mistakes in, in the same yeah. way that, that you're it's talking about. It's not public. It, but when you're doing the 10 o'clock news sports bulletin, not the actual 10 o'clock news, are you nervous? Because you're going out to the entire country. You don't... And my mum and dad. Th- are they in addition to the entire country? <laughs> well, they, they're more important than most of the rest of the country, yeah. The, the, the point is, is that you know that a, a mistake will obviously render yourself a complete laughing stock mm. and you'll feel terrible but a mistake is something that you are completely in control of making or not making okay the the reason you you'll you love is because every time i refer to music is is everybody laughs at me but the di- the difference my, my pre television career was music is that you had an instrument you weren't in full control but when you're doing something that is just you, you are in complete control. So you feel so much more comforted by that. But if you're a footballer and you make a mistake, it might be a mistake as a result of a whole number of different yeah, things yeah, that aren't yeah. necessarily in your control. But you don't see, but you don't ever see that at the time. Exactly. Yeah. But you also know that a mistake has a material cost to it. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to lose my job if I accidentally can't read the auto cue. Mm. You're not going to lose your job if your piece is below par. But Chinch, Thank you God. might... <laughs> <laughs> Again. But Chinch, you, that's, it's, so it's the, it's the fear of failure that probably unites... And it's letting the, te- it's letting the team down as well. You know, when you have people yeah. that you, and you work so hard, it's that thought of, I will let the team the club so maybe it's that that's the weight on your shoulders that's not necessarily the fans and it can seem strange to say that you've got 40,000 fans and if you score an own goal that the first bit I think about is the goalkeeper or the rest of the team what are they going to say to me in the what am I going to feel about what I've let them down so it was it's the team aspect and certainly my in in my opinion well I'd say they're the, two, they're the two key differences one is that if me or you Hugh if we make a mistake we're letting ourselves down and we're responsible for that and you suffer a bit but it's only you you're letting down as Chinch says footballers are letting, letting the team down the coaching staff down and or they might, might feel that way yeah. and all that preparation that, that's gone into the game the other thing is that if you make a mistake if, I'm a, if I make a mistake I've got an editor in in the office who can save me from it basically so I have a backstop if you if you accidentally if, if I say something it's too late use the word <laughs> pillock on the 10 o'clock news then, then that goes out live and my mum and dad are offended yes but the, the, respon- the response to that is people will laugh a, a bit at the funny mistake on the news and there might be a meme or a vine, a vi- you know, not a vine that doesn't exist anymore, but you know, it'll be a gif of it or whatever. If Chinch makes a mistake, then you get loads of Andrew Evertonian. There, there will be no humor, humorous yeah. element to it. That, be, oh, never mind, yeah, yeah. you see that, this. That's mm. a different kind of pressure. Although one or two of your own goals were hilarious. That's which true. Probably the one against Nottingham Forest was a particular <laughs> beauty. <laughs> But again, that's how I would encapsulate that feeling of nervousness and then what can happen. That was kind of the perfect storm of why I felt like I did virtually going into every game that I played, strangely apart from the England games, is the fear of doing that. And it only happened maybe 
two or three times when you made such horrendous out and you played so many games. But that's the fear. That that is it. When you made a mistake in a game, even if it wasn't so, so obvious as an own goal, mm. even, you know, if you were at fault for a goal, even or a bad pass, we gave the ball away. I used to think, oh, I can't play. It, genuinely, that's really? how you. Yes, did absolutely. You dwell on yes. It? How long did yes. you dwell on it for? Well, I remember the match. Well, this is the problem, and this is what when Joe Royal and Willie Donachie came, they worked very hard. Willie, in particular, worked very hard psychologically on how you judge what you're doing at the time that you're doing it, because that's when it's going to have most mm. influence. If you miss that first tackle or give or make a poor pass, if you let that then affect the next ten passes that you make, it's going to affect your whole performance but you can mentally it's going to happen you've got to understand these things nothing is perfect but I remember Tony Buck saying this about me when I was a young player at Man City I want everything to be perfect and expect everything to be perfect both in terms of what I can do and how the game should go and life isn't like that so it's actually coming to terms with that being the case that it's okay to give the ball away because next time you probably won't but even if you do the time after that you probably do something good with it so it's again it's changing your mindset and Willie was probably the only one but that wasn't really attached to nervousness that was just change, to change your psychological approach to what you've just done when you made, when you made a mistake or, or, didn't, or just didn't play well mm. As a rule, were the other players in your team, were they sympathetic? Were they... They, they... You just tended to, because you were giving yourself such a hard time, you just presumed that everybody was talking behind closed doors about how bad you were. But I suppose if you talked to them, they probably maybe not even noticed it was yeah. as bad as you thought it was. Even the coaches say, well, how on earth am I going to play next week if I've just done that this week? But the co- they, they don't see it like that, mm. but you think that they do. So that then is another weight on your shoulders. It's not just how you feel about yourself. You presume that the coaching staff, all the other players are saying... You can't play. You shouldn't be here. And that is, again, it's a self-esteem issue, isn't it? Did you enjoy being a player? Oh, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> Did I enjoy? Well, I look back now. Most people, when they retire, they kind of hanker for going back and being a footballer again. And I don't, but I'm very lucky in what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm probably happier now than I was when I played. And that's, it's not putting football down or saying that I didn't want to do it because I had an instinctive ability and hopefully I did some good stuff along the way. And yes, I did enjoy certain aspects of it, but others, no, I can't say. And strangely, match days were not my... I love training. Mm. I love being around pre-season, you know, building relationships with and being part of a team and being being that type of person. I didn't want to be the star. I didn't want to be the person making mistakes. I didn't want to be front and centre. So if you're a footballer, it's hard to say, well, are you really going to enjoy if that's how you feel about what you are? Not about the job that you're doing. You can't suddenly turn, well, you're a footballer today, so go and act and think like a footballer. I never did that. I acted and thought of myself being a footballer. And because you can play and people watch it, they think, oh, this is this is this must be the greatest thing in the world to be able to do this. And for me, it probably... It probably wasn't. It was a job. I did have a mortgage. I had a family, so I did see it. And you have to see it in that way sometimes. It's very different now in terms of finances. You know, you're earning a lot more, so you've got a lot more money to to do different things with. But it was, you know, you needed to play regularly to to live the life that you wanted. So again, that's a pressure when you're married, when you have children. Of course, yeah. This is a pressure that you feel football is a means to an end as well. Which most people say, well, no, it's not. It's it's football. It's great. You're out there playing everything in front of foot. Yeah, but still something that provides for my family and I, I did see it from, from that point of view as well the other thing that Mercedes actually touched on is the abuse from fans which I, w- I would imagine is worse now than it was when you were playing well social media and everything yeah. else there wasn't that even yeah I, I can't remember there's no escape being, from it I, I can't remember now. I can't remember ever you know people pulling you aside or whatever and, and having a, it just didn't happen but if you did social media today and you made a mistake in a Merseyside or Manchester derby and, yeah. you, and you you'd get dogs abuse wouldn't you 
So but it's not, and I, I, it's a di- this is a different subject. I don't even think it's just the existence of social media. I think the way that I think what fans expect from their team has changed. I think this idea that there was a, br- a brilliant Brendan Rodgers interview with Ollie Holt in the Mail on Sunday, uh, not long ago. Uh, and Rogers talking about how Celtic is different even to United or Liverpool because Celtic have to win every game. Yeah, they can't. Whereas if you're a Liverpool manager, he said you can go to Old Trafford get a draw and it's, it's a decent result. No one's complaining. With Celtic, you have to win every game domestically, and that's probably true. And it is probably a different type of pressure. But I think there's a lot of clubs now where the fans, or there is a section of fans who will complain if they don't win at all. The idea that it's the same with all these players apologising. Which we might have touched on before. I've definitely tweeted no, about it. You've tweeted about it, but, but we players not come, t- yes, coming out right. and, and apologising. Trent Alexander-Arnold. Trent did it, and Eric Bailly did it when United went out of the Champions League. As though, as, I mean, it was as though he committed a crime. It was astonishing that the sort of the self-laceration, and that's different. That and that is that's meeting a demand from fans that if you lose, you have in some way disgraced the club, and the club must never lose, and it must never happen again. Football teams lose. When you're a football fan, you sign up to support a team. The deal is not that that do, team do, will do, never disappoint you. The players have to do this because they feel the fans are looking at them and saying, you really don't care. You're earning all this money. Possibly, yeah. They think, if you, we lose a game, you have to come out and do this because you need to prove to us. That you but care, 20 yeah. years ago, and I, that wasn't the case. You won, you lost. That's just how it... And they didn't have the avenues to maybe or to apologise in that yeah. way. But it, clearly... Do, do you think they really mean to apologise or they're doing it because they need to be seen it'll to be, be Maybe they've had this with clubs of encouraged players so even they put tweets out there for them to send out. We've seen instances of that. The, you the know, thanking travelling fans and all <laughs> yeah. that type of... Sunderland. So again, I'm a little bit like, kind of yeah. cynical. Is that really... Yeah. But it's, all you can do is try and put it... As a professional, all you can try and do is put it right in the next game. That's all you can do. So Did you apologise if you felt like you had done something wrong? Did you apologise to your teammates? Absolutely, yeah. You, yeah. And, yeah. and, and you did have you to do feel, that, yeah. Yeah. was that a cathartic exercise for yes. you? Did you feel better after it? And yes. And was able to wipe the slate clean and think? And then work on why those mistakes were made. And if uh, surely if someone does make a mistake, they hold their hands up and say, I want to put that right. I don't want that to happen again. Can we work together to make sure it doesn't? Even though it was my maybe individual error. But like you said, there might be four or five different things that have happened. But ultimately, if I score the own goal, then you say, well, right, how do we? And that's what you do for somebody else. And I know, strangely, people did make mistakes that cost us games. I would never be the one to berate them. But then I would presume that everybody would be wanting to berate me if I was the one making the mistake. So you see everybody else very differently than yourself, which again is a self-esteem thing. We, we have had so many stories um, in the last few years particularly opening the door to, to depression in football and understanding so much more about it um, clearly has been high profile um, great losses to the game because of it um, uh, the secret footballer also has written about how terribly they mm-hmm. felt after games and how difficult they felt it to psychologically overcome all the difficulties that they were having and they hated going to games they hated coming home and they felt awful for the rest if they had lost for example they felt awful for you know a considerable amount of time they were just appalling to spend time with and all so these, does so the football exacerbate the problems that so say they were out working in any other sphere of work do, does football make it worse because of, of the nature of the I, job I don't I don't think it's to do with the I don't think it's that the individuals are particularly susceptible to to the kind of heightened emotions football is, is a self-selecting environment so if you have any kind of propensity as a child to self-doubt or nervousness or, any, or anxiety or what have you then you will probably be not be able to get through the academy stage because that's such a cutthroat world. Any weakness at all can either hold you back or be exploited by others or what, what have you. You might not survive that. So it might be that only very few players, very talented players like Chinch, 
who have have that propensity towards self-doubt get through to the elite. But it also wasn't there, the appreciation that this might be a problem yeah. wasn't there. I presume now with academies, they are looking at their kids' development they are, but I don't, off the field. I, I don't, so they're, they're more they're not aware. To fix it. They will say it's a problem that will prevent we're, we're, yes. you becoming a footballer. I, so they I, might just cut but, it but out. But we're that, aware that it might be there. But when I was, yeah, I don't see how if you're even if even at the, the the most modern academies, I don't see how you can take a 13 or 14 year old who is really nervous, and even with all the sort of psychological help, I don't see how in the time frame that you've got for that kid, you can overcome kind of what is a, a natural mm-hmm. but, but, inclination. But what was also extraordinary is that you started your career at the age of 16. Yeah. So you, even though these problems were clear to you, you were considered good enough to play at a very early and underdeveloped by contrast yeah. or by comparison yeah. to, to, to other players. Well, what I felt I had to do was build what I felt was a footballer around myself to enable me to go and do the job that I was gifted enough to do. The person within that shell is very different. And when you get home and you're not speaking to the coaching staff or around other players, you can be yourself and then all the self-doubts can, can come in there. But I tell you, when I walk into the training ground or whatever, you, you become something to... But eventually that starts, that shell starts to kind of fall away and you do become more confident and you do you experience football, you experience life with your kids and everything else, you do start to change as a person, which does make life a lot easier as a, as a footballer. But that tends to happen in your 30s when your career is coming mm-hmm. to an end. So it wouldn't it be great if that was happening maybe 16, 17, but that's not, and it might be true of a lot of you know kids coming into the game. They might have to, because they're getting looked at and, and they don't want to be seen to be weak because that's what it was sadly will be seen as. Any nervousness, you know, why not? But hopefully that isn't the case and they're getting help with it. Whether they're going to be footballers or not, they should get some help for this. But that's what I tended to do in the world that I was brought up in in the mid-80s with the way the football world was. This wasn't something that you're going to say, oh, by the way, I'm feeling really nauseous. I'm feeling really nervous. You just get a clip around the ear roll and said, get on what you're talking about. So you had to then say, right, how do I get through the day? How do I get through the season? being the person that I am and this is what you tended to have to do sadly um, but now I do think it would be very different that kids that or they, they would appreciate that the, the possibility that this is there and they would get some help for that it's interesting though that what Mertesacker said about retirement almost almost makes it sound as though football leads to some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder yeah the, the long-term repercussions yeah. of, of what you're psychologically have to put yourself through to yeah. get through because th- th- these people are human beings we, we're, we're going to do a podcast at some point in the future about the, the, the kind of the, the paradox between they are young men mm. and with the trappings of fortune that only in other walks of life you have to work your whole yeah. life to be able to get so there's yeah. a kind of weird paradox about that but the the immaturity that a lot of players will have because they are young yeah. they are human beings who are young they yeah. are by default immature mm. you, you start to wonder what the exception and what the rule is mm. the exception might actually be that young player who isn't immature and is able to cope because they understand and they're able to get rid of that shell and develop and to and to kind of approach it in the best mental way but there are others who you kind of assume will be struggling and will be having to throughout a 15 year career yeah. cope in some way yeah. that as Saka hints at and you get the impression that long term you become a damaged person who doesn't necessarily know but it's, how to do it. You, it's whether football is deal, making that damage worse. You've dealt with it though. You've managed to deal with it in doing something that you never did as a player. Mm. You never talked to the media. No. Um, which part of me wonders whether that's related because yeah, you don't yeah, want yeah. to Absolutely, yeah. say anything a, that would, front and centre wasn't yeah, my thing. Yeah. Didn't want yeah. to say anything that was either considered a mistake yeah. saying the wrong thing but yeah. also you didn't want the spotlight. Mm. Um, but also then you've done this 
post-career career, mm. which is to almost try and build a, a character which is more you but this, this, in, this is the, in the yeah, glare. That's what I'm saying. Since everybody stopped you, playing, like you've yeah. got a second chance, yeah, if you Yeah, I was like. working towards myself during my playing career. So when I retired at 32, 33... And stepped away from the game and brought my kids up and then started some radio work, TV. I, I'm more myself now than I've ever been, but it took playing. Mm. Did I learn more during those playing years? Did it develop me more? I'm not so sure whether it did or it didn't. It did a lot of harm as well as some good, maybe. And it gave me a lot of things in my life as well in terms of my family and their upbringing. So I, I, that's why I would never say I would never want to do it or I didn't enjoy it. At times I did, at times I didn't. You can probably understand why. But then when I came out of the game, that's when life... I could be myself. That's that's probably the point I'm making. I'm more myself now. After I stopped playing, I felt in some ways that football kind of, again, you had to put that shell on just to get through because it wasn't a natural state for me to be in. I didn't find it completely comfortable putting boots on and going out in front of 40,000 people. And, and yet you want to be on television in front of 40,000 people. I'm just so damn good at what I do. <laughs> they just put a camera it. in front of me and say speech in. But, there is, there but is. you still want to be involved in the game, a game which you had a very complicated relationship with. Yes. Which, so that there must be enough of a bond for you to want to do that per Mertesacker after all this he wants to go he is in yeah. co already involved in coaching but he, he can help enormously through what he's been so through he can help. With so there is, there is a the feeling that even though that the, the, the difficult relationship is brought to bear and everybody can uh, can see how raw that can be sometimes that mm -hmm. those people still want to stay associated with the game um, and be part of something that they have often felt is a cause for them feeling terrible but the broadcasting is interesting so when I did the reading at your wedding I was far more nervous then. My wedding, by the way. Uh, when I did the reading at Hugh's wedding. I did a reading at Andy's wedding. Yes, I did. <laughs> Excellent it was too. Right, well, I'll, I'll, so, take, I'll take me out of it entirely then. I imagine <laughs> you were more nervous doing a reading at Andy's wedding, whichever one of Andy's weddings it was. The <laughs> How very day. <laughs> when he got married the first time, I was about 12 years old. Oh, right. <laughs> the, uh, were you nervous for that? You, yes. Because you made it look, that's why I've always said, watching your work, I'm thinking, that is, that is how I want to but feel I, 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 would, I do. I would Rory, guess. you were nervous for... For my wedding, I ha I hate public speaking. I can't stand it. But you're very it, good at it. But no, I'm not. I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at, at public speaking in a room of people whose faces I can see. Uh -huh. But the, I don't know how many listeners we have. Several dozen, I imagine. <laughs> Several dozen. The, the, at least two dozen. <laughs> there are more people listening to this podcast. Yeah. Than were at Hugh's wedding. Yes. Just Hugh's not that popular. But the, <laughs> and couldn't afford anybody the, else. You um, don't buy them all dinner. It's ridiculous. <laughs> the, but I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous when I do the radio, or I'm a little bit nervous when I go on TV. So I don't know, don't know what to do with my hands. But the, that's why I don't get invited on TV very often. And also your shoe shoe choices. My, the whole often the whole the whole shoe issue. The um, <laughs> shoe gate. Shoe gate. The um, <laughs> but to do the radio where you're listening, you know, you're talking to how many thousand people doesn't bother me in the slightest. But that's the beauty of radio because you're having a conversation but with one it, person and yet all the other people. Is it well. the same? When you do TV, were you more nervous doing the reading at Chinch's wedding or even doing a speech at your own than you would be doing the 10 o'clock news sports bulletin it's a, a, when Carthy um, is unavailable? Carthy <laughs> can't do it. What, when, the thing is that you, whenever you can see your audience, it's much worse. So, again, you, you find I don't think I find it the other way. The coping mechanism. No, no, I like being in front talking to people. A group, a pe groups of people. It wouldn't bother me in the slightest. I, I'm more nervous with a microphone. That's really that, that's counter, that is counterintuitive. Yeah. Yes, it is. But I, you, when you're talking about, actually, no, I can stand up in front of 200 people, 
and quite enjoy that. Mm. Whereas commentating, when you're thinking of the people that are out there, there could be dozens, there could be millions. <laughs> well, the, the trick is to not... <laughs> the, the, change they, the James you get. They're, they're not <laughs> they, they, they always... Norwich against Barnsley. <laughs> they always say, pop chop Barnsley. They, they, those people who give you advice, they never think about yeah. the people you're speaking to in a literal sense. Think of them in a... Metaphysical sense. Metaphysical sense, because you want to be able to involve them in the conversation that you're having, yeah. but you don't, and you're talking directly to them whilst you're having a conversation with somebody else, but never actually think when you're talking to that big black microphone in front of you that there's going to be several million people listening. When I work for the World Service, there's sometimes 40 million people listening, mm. but you don't think about that because it would crush you. So yeah, you, yeah. that your coping me- mechanism is to instinctively not yeah. think about it. Yeah. So whenever you're in front of a camera or in front of a microphone, you don't think about it, but you, Chinch, are in a position now where you're saying that you prefer Strangely, to be yes. behind a microphone even you, though you don't like it as much and mm. then when you were a player you didn't like it because you were in front of everybody because you could see but them. But maybe again that's... You're a very confusing a very, man. Very complex character. Yeah, very was, complex. You, you must be comfortable talking in front of 200 people because you, you spent 15 years playing in front of, in front of 40,000. Yeah, but that I didn't ever... This is the strange thing. I didn't ever see them did. because all I was... I genuinely was concerned about controlling the bloody ball and passing it. Seriously. But you made it look There's only enough. certain games like Manchester <laughs> when you score in big and you feel and you see I tended to my head was down when I was playing genuinely one of the problems yeah one of the main problems <laughs> terrible vision right when you're streaking ball, in behind the score. <laughs> but um, yeah I, I didn't tend to th- I, I couldn't I couldn't because again I, I t- if you start thinking about that it'll just completely crush you we need to finish because I did say that we were going to talk about it um, and so in the interest of being thorough mm. um, the England experience we have so many stories in, most latterly um, told by Kieran Dyer who I spoke to about um, when he had his book out earlier this year and he tells a story about the fact he was on the bench for England and he had a Liverpool player next to him who said, I do not want to go on because I do not want to face the possibility of getting a bad mark in the paper, the Mm -hmm. fan not enjoying my performance. Um, He was a fringe player, so he felt like there was too much to prove and it was very difficult for him to gain that from going on as a substitute in whichever game this was. You didn't enjoy the England setup, and you said that you weren't nervous for when you played for England mm. is there a correlation to be made that you didn't because you didn't really care as much about the experience mm. that you didn't feel nervous for that reason that's this is this is deep stuff isn't it this is really I'm going to have to have a good think about this after we've finished it was because I've talked about the shell and everything else that you put around yourself when you played and I ultimately I thought well you're playing international football I didn't feel I was good enough to be there genuinely mm. You can disagree at any point. No chinch. You absolutely deserve to be there. You were the you fifth best left back for that. Soon as let me tell you, you belonged on a pitch uh, with Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. As nil, long nil. as Graham was so, wasn't it? So I, and I thought this is this is going to work really well. But actually, I because it was so strange and the cliques and everything else, it was you were basically you were on your own and there were two or three people that you could speak to. But you just had to get on with it and get through the week. That's how I tended to view it. So strangely, I thought that was when I would be. When I first went, I was incredibly nervous. I didn't know anybody. But once I got through that, I can remember playing and never feeling nervous at all. And it should have worked completely opposite. It should have been far worse playing on the international stage if you felt like that when you were playing for your club. But maybe because of the work I'd done at Everton with the people that had been there, physically I was very different as well. I was probably the fittest player that they had there in terms of how I looked. I remember Glenn Hoddle saying this about the work that we did. He could see that physically I looked different than the other players, so he must be training differently. So that makes you feel, again, your self-esteem is boosted. So maybe, again, it was at a point, 27, 28, I had my kids... We had a tough time when they were younger. Things were starting to improve. We knew what was going to be happening. You're becoming a bit more comfortable with yourself. So maybe it was the start of the real chinch. 
<laughs> coming out of the egg to be the fully rounded person that you see today. So what maybe that started during my, my England days. <laughs> yes, the resurrection. But that, that, that seems a shame. <laughs> that, is, that is offensive to a lot it of people. It will be, yes. Chinch is bigger than Jesus. Yes. Um, there, there, but there he's, is a, he's definitely buffer than Jesus. <laughs> that's true. When you... Because when you, I, I always think... triceps. <laughs> from, from, from knowing you and appreciating your great value to the footballing world. Yeah. I always think that you were an underused resource for England. So part of it was because you mm. felt like, well, you could have gone to the 1998 World Cup if your thigh wasn't yes. mashed. Yes. So part of, part of it was perhaps this kind of reticence to be part of the England setup. But had you perhaps embraced that part of it, not the yeah. playing, but yeah. the, 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 the setup, yeah. and that you had a little bit more enthusiasm, enthusiasm for it perhaps you might have had a much longer England career what might have what would have happened if there'd maybe been two or three Everton players there with me mm. that kind of strength in numbers you'd feel a lot more comfortable to because you've got those people around you as well but the problem is when you're a single player from Everton and there's all these established players five for Man United five for Liverpool all these players that you've seen playing for England for 10-15 years it does become psychologically tough because you think everyone's looking at you and they're all thinking and I genuinely did think they're all looking at me saying what on earth is he why is he here it's only because Phil Neville's injured <laughs> and they were right <laughs> but, they, but you, you start but then I, it gets to a point where you think you know what I'll I'll show you okay and I, I did my some of the training sessions I did with England it went the other way and I thought right I'm not going to allow this how I feel that you feel about me to actually affect what I'm doing so hopefully I trained and played reasonably well you said that at the beginning of this conversation that you hope that there is much more of a support structure in mm. place should players A be able to say I feel nervous and B get that support to, to, to cope with it in a slightly more um, sensible way than tying your shoelaces and then undoing them and yes, then tying yes. them again so that hopefully has changed but do you believe the England issue has changed do you believe that that players now because Kieran Dyer and this Liverpool player was only a matter of years ago it's not it's within the last 10 years so do you feel like that that is still an issue that players get called out for England because the whole thing that surrounds an England team particularly in a major tournament yeah. is so difficult for a human being playing for England to go through that actually there is that fear and that is undermining their ability to perform and undermining the team. Maybe again, as I say, if you've got maybe five Tottenham players, if you have, if you have groups of players from clubs, it it is more easier to feel comfortable and feel more part and feel as if you can stand up and say something in front of other people. But again, if you get one or two players from from individual clubs, that that's maybe the problem for those players. But if you tend all the star players for England, certainly the starting eleven for England, they all tend to be playing together in two or three different teams don't they that tends to be how it is um, particularly, at the, moment, particularly yeah. at the moment and maybe it's a generational thing as well maybe because they have got more help maybe psychologically they are further down the line I don't know what they've gone through in their early careers in terms of, of help you know mentally as much as physically maybe it is very different and these players can be very different than England have had in the past but I remember when I first got called up Barry Horn who's Everton at the time said how it was going to be when you walk into that environment he said this is how it is with England because of, over the years it'd been I've spoken to people who've been part of it and it was exactly as he said the cliques all over but that has changed now that all the playing stuff has completely changed time has gone by but you still see the same old problems with England that when they fall down like they did in the Euros you're thinking is that the same old problem again is that people aren't really pulling together as a team and is that the problem that England will always have or is it an individual problem with the people within that squad aren't able or aren't comfortable enough to kind of raise themselves and, and play together as a national team. Well, we hope it's been instructive. Um, certainly, uh, I think Rory and I have learned yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, 
and we've known you for like a decade and more so you know yeah. it's nice to talk um, yeah. but before we go time for some levity and also brevity if that's all right chinch never yeah. mind jack and Ori, what a soccer story this is what andy tells the tale from his playing days with all adult behavior and libel worthy details removed now i had to do some research on this one because it's a very funny story <laughs> but it was at the end of the 1993 premier league season now was Classic everton season. yeah now everton big season everton finished 13th so brilliant <laughs> uh aston villa runners-up to Manchester United yep. that year. So they'd had a terrific season. Now, Everton, Aston Villa, naturally, when you've had a decent season, the first thing you think about doing is uh, going on tour to Mauritius, isn't it? Yeah. That's what all yeah. great teams do. So this was Everton, Aston Villa, travelling out to Mauritius to contest the Air Mauritius Cup. <laughs> nice. I think it was a one-off. Yeah. Because it, it bombed. Um, you've... you've, you've mentioned this uh, this fable yes, flight I, before this is you? the flight it's not what happened on the pitch out in Mauritius although we gave the Mauritian national team a good spanking 3-0 uh, on the pitch 3-0 Three, what do you mean only 3-0 they were very well organised they were tenacious anyway this is not what happened on the pitch out there because Villa beat us and won the tournament because they were better than us. Uh, it was on the flight out. I've told the Ron Atkinson story with the, the sick on the kneecaps business haven't yeah. we've had that this is a story I was a bit loath to tell because it's very funny and the people in it are very high profile, but I did, I'm not sure whether it was the right thing to do. So this long plane journey, Howard Kendall, manager of Everton, he did like to drink occasionally. <laughs> That's not something we've mentioned before. No. And Aston Villa at the time, one of their great stars, Paul McGrath, mm. who has been known to partake as well. Yeah. Yes. So this, yeah. Is a, yeah. this is a long flight, clearly. This is a 10, 11 hour, 12 hour flight. So... This is late. This must be eight or nine hours into the flight, and there's been a fair amount of alcohol consumed by most people, but certainly by a couple of people. So I remember wandering down the aisle, and there was. You remember on planes, they have kind of the big planes. They have the kind of. Is it like three, then four in the middle, and then yeah, three? That's so right, yeah. yeah. So classic three, four, three, three, formation. four, three. Exactly. If we'd only know what was coming. So this <laughs> is the this is the four middle. There's the, all that's Howard Kendall is sat in the third seat of four, and lay upon him with his head in Howard Kendall's lap, is a slightly inebriated Paul McGrath. <laughs> and what Howard Kendall is doing is stroking Paul McGrath's head and saying, what a player. <laughs> what a player. <laughs> so I've tried to equate that in modern terms. Looking at the current Premier League table, that is like Rafa Benitez stroking Chris Smalling's head <laughs> saying what a player this lad is what a player and you know when you see something and you think that that that's not how can that that's yeah. not happening that's not really happening but it, it was that kind of playing journey yeah but it was just just I'd, wonderful I'd probably say I'd probably say <laughs> Phil, Phil Jones because of his ability to play the ball as as Paul McGrath no doubt really really exactly the same uh, do get in touch with us if you can at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com thank you to all uh, of you for sticking with us this long and if you thought you were going to get uh, Paul McGrath's head being stroked at the end of it then you're a better man than any yes. of us please subscribe share rate and review we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule uh, thank you to Rory and Andy and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed that all felt very serious didn't it it was all very serious you know, well, it's, quite, it's, it's a roller coaster. we got uh, we got ups and downs and, and players aren't going to speak about these things because they, they'll feel as though yeah. well, they do, fans will say wait a minute wait a minute they, all the money all the money you can't feel like that you're they do football, sometimes it's, that's why they, they don't retire. They, yes. they do it after they've retired where, where, we, where we learn about these things and we feel like we have 
not done our job correctly in mm. supporting people mm. who feel like they can only say it after the end of their career. You forget they that they're suffer. people. You see them as yeah. footballers and as, as players for your club and you forget. I feel like this is the kind of a- area where it's very difficult to fade out on. So I think we'll just fade out on this. Bye. <laughs>